Turn your Bible to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 48, and we will eventually get there. But by way of introduction, let me read from Proverbs, the 22nd chapter. It says that a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed better than silver or gold, rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. A good name. Name being connected with person, personality. Actions, family, reputation. So we hear a name and we immediately, we make an association, be it good or not so good. That name has in it inherent power. It's why we find that right out of the box, if you wish, God meeting with the man Moses, handing down 10 commandments, Not ideas or suggestions, but Ten Commandments. And in the first three, they have to do with God's reputation, God's honor, God's name. Thou shalt have no other gods. Thou shalt not make any graven image. And then the third one, it says, Thou shalt not misuse the name of the Lord. He goes on and says, for God will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, that's a strong statement. Now, maybe you read, maybe maybe in Sunday school they taught you, well, you don't add a cuss word to God. This is what it means to misuse the name of the Lord or to smack your thumb with a hammer and deliver a deified expression is perhaps, you know, that's, that's, that's a, perhaps an application of this. Another translation goes on and it says, don't use the Lord's name in vain. This is the one that probably we're the most familiar with. But that word vain, it's not speaking of just vanity or pride, but it means useless, idle. Worthless, foolish, silly. And yet God understood something about his nature, his character, his glory in the connection with the use of his name. Not to use it unwisely. The disciples came to Jesus and they said, you know, John's disciples were taught to pray. Would you give us a prayer? Give give us something to work with here. And so he starts out training the disciples to pray with our Father. It's a good place to start. Paternity, relationship, who art in heaven, above all, seated, never disturbed from that place of sovereignty and supremacy. Our Father who art in heaven, what's the very next thing that comes? Hallowed be what? Your name or thy name, yes. Hallowed, sacred, consecrated, holy, set apart, hallowed. We find that one of the narratives throughout Scripture is the proper use and veneration of God's name. 
God's person. Why? Because it's inextricably connected to the not only the holiness, but the wholeness of who God is. God's person as a theme throughout this Bible. And subsequently, in what we'll be talking about this morning, I believe how we should relate to God as well. Isaiah, 48th chapter, verses 9, 10, and 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver, but I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, please notice the repetition in Scripture. I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Let's pray. Lord, in these few moments this morning, anoint our hearing. Anoint our hearing. Not just anoint the speaking, anoint our hearing to hear well. God, not just to affirm, but God, let something get in us to change us, transform us, shift us. Change us. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage in Isaiah 48 is it's one of these pregnant passages. There's a lot here. It's, it's chewy as well. And, but we find a theme that runs through these three verses that's very consistent. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. Not just because I feel sorry for you, not just because I, I, I want to deal with you in, 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 a, in a way and call you mine, but I am for, it's, it's for my name's sake that I'm doing this. For the sake of my praise. Look at this. And he says, and this is not refining you as in silver, but the furnace of affliction. And I've, I've read a number of commentaries on this, and we're not quite sure what this difference is, except what we get some picture that one is probably of greater degree or magnitude than the other. Neither of which you and I really can get happy about this morning. Let's read on quick. But for my own sake, and then he repeats it, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Look at the theme that runs. About six or seven repetitions of the same thought in this Isaiah 48 passage. For his name's sake. You see, it shifts the orientation, if you wish, from us to him. And this is the shift right here. Because if you think about so much of what we are inundated with today, whether it's the endless listicles that we are picking up, seven steps to a better life, three steps to, I mean, we've got all of these self-improvement things that we can tap into. And yet how many times do we approach the word of God, even the, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, that somehow we can just be a better version of ourselves? 
that we can get an upgrade if we'll do these things. But we've shifted the orientation, we've shifted the emphasis to us rather than to God. And this is where something needs to change. You see, it's not just whether we do or don't do a thing. That's called morality. All right? Now listen, that's not a bad place to be. I mean, I was driving in this morning, and there was the troopers and the sheriffs, and they were all waiting. And, you know, I, I, I just, it's, it's immediately how, you know, those of us, we just look down instinctively to be sure. You with me? Because, because I was staying within the ethical or the legal or the moral, if you wish, system set up, then everybody was happy on the road this morning. And I was happy because I don't have to go to court. Because you see, when we've got our, those, those moral things in place, then it benefits us and it benefits those around us. But how many of you know that being moral and being spiritual are two really different things? Behavior modification. You can do enough behavior modification to be a better version of self. The problem is, most of the time, the motivation behind that is usually tight pants or a bad doctor's report. Or we've had one of those moments with our financial planner. Are you with me? That, let me help you out. If you don't modify your behavior, you're going to die. All right? Well, that'll get you away from the golden arches pretty quick, will it not? But it doesn't have quite as much. Oh, sorry. I shouldn't have called out one restaurant over the next. All right. <laughs> but the behavior modification, getting, getting, you know, just the systems of our own life in order is not what I'm talking about because the primary benefit and the primary center of all that is still what? You and me. But for his namesake. It changes the subject and the object. I was not a great English student, but as you know, you have one that acts on the next. And somehow this is where the shift needs to occur in you and in me. It's not just in his name, it's for his name. And those one little word, in or for, it changes the entire emphasis of our life. And I got to tell you, as I'm getting a little bit older, it's not anymore about what I can have or do. It really begins, the orientation begins to change to that which is really more eternal, more transcendent. What of this, how does this affect God rather than just how does this affect me? You didn't catch that. All right. <laughs> Let me say that one more time. Every preacher in this room wants to be where I am right now. I mean... I'm watching Pastor June and AJ, and they're like, oh, I got one for this. <laughs> they just, 
Okay, Siri, this one's for you. True discipleship, though, is not just about what we can get in his name. It's what we are doing for his name. It's why in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, baptizing in his name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Matthew, the seventh chapter. Many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons and did we not do miracles in your name? What does he say? I didn't know you. Acts chapter 19. Talk about name. The sons of a Jewish high priest, the sons of Sceva. You remember these boys? They were casting out demons, what? In the name of Jesus. And they finally get to a a moment, they get to a ministry moment. It says, now wait a minute, the demon's speaking, wait a minute. Jesus I know and Paul I've heard about. Who be you? And beats the boys and sends them out with no clothes on. You see, there's a lot of in his name that's completely detached to for his name. Some years ago, I don't remember if it was this church or the one I pastored in North Carolina, but I had prayed a public prayer after the service or something, and I said amen, and they came up to me after the service, and they said, that prayer didn't count. I said, excuse me? He says, you didn't say in the name of Jesus. I said, I wasn't aware God was confused who I was talking to. <laughs> but you see, there was such a mentality, they, in his name, the mantra, that they didn't understand at all the relational aspects of how this works. The name, yes, it has inherent power. The in his name, yes, miracles can occur. But we need to understand it's more than just what we can get out of that name. It is the vital connection and association that we have of the owner of that name. I got to go back a ways in the 1970s. We had what was known as an oil embargo. Now, most of you have no idea because you're not as old as I am. But we had an oil crisis that we did not have enough fuel, gasoline, for cars. And so if a gas station got gas, they would sell it out just immediately. And so cars would line up literally for miles to try to just get a little bit of gas. And in those days, we had self-service gas pumps. Now, let me go old school on you here. I'm not talking about swipe the credit card and you get to watch a movie while you're pumping your gas. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking old school that you fed dollar bills into it. Anybody old enough to have a clue what I'm talking about? See, everybody's so young. All right, nevertheless. But you had to get these nice, clean, pristine dollars and you would zick, 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 and you would... You'd feed it into the machine. Well, it was during that period of time that, again, it took almost no encouragement for people to line up to purchase gasoline. So myself and some of my young, dumb, idiot friends decided one night to pull up to one of these self-service gas pumps and stick the nozzle in the, in, 
and there was no gas, but a few hundred cars lined up behind me, a mile down the road. Now, it was a lot of fun, and it was really funny until the blue lights showed up. Now, the guys that were with me, band of brothers they are, they're booking it. They just, they run. You, you with me so far? Now, you got to understand how this works. Bright orange 1961 Ford Econoline van, mag wheels, curtains in the windows, and pinstripes. I'm trying to give you the whole picture here. All right? Just so you know, I was on the list of most wanted juveniles at the police department at the time. The orange van was reflective of the Cocker Spaniel look that I had when I had hair. It was lovely. I had on the 30s, and if you don't know what they are, go Google it, all right? Big bell-bottom jeans, barefooted. So here we are. You're getting the whole picture now, right? And so this John Law gets out of the car and approaches me. I can't go anywhere. I hand him my license. He looks at the license, and he looks at me, and he says, James Morton? And you say, well, who is that? Well, that happens to be me. Because in the South, everybody had a double name. Peggy Sue, Mary Grace, you with me? I was James Morton, but only to those people who were well-connected and knew my family. And so when he called me by my double Southern name, I knew I was a dead man. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because he looked down, he looked at me, and he said, we have a problem. He said, so I'm going to give you a choice. He said, I can arrest you. He said, I can call your mother. You have to know my mom. I can call your mother, or I can call your grandfather. He happened to be serving on the sheriff's department at the time. I said, could I go for door number four, Monty? Why don't you just shoot me right now? And let's end this. Fortunately, he thought that funny, and he sent me along the way. And the few hundred people behind me decided not to follow me. But you realize in that moment of silliness, there was a name connection that not only had I now brought disrepute on a stupid 17-year-old, but now it had extended two generations, and it had been connected with Bad parenting. Are you hearing something here? There was connection that was immediately made. Moses interceding with God. Exodus 32. Sick of these folk. Moses, God, I know what you're talking about, man. I'm sick of them too. They're whining about bread and they're whining about meat and water and everything. You know, I just, God says, I'll kill them all. I'm going to wipe them out, and I'll start over with you. Now, you and I probably would have thought, it's not like a good deal to me. Go ahead. <laughs> but it's interesting the perspective that Moses had. Listen to this. He said, why should the Egyptians say? It was with evil intent that God brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth. 
Moses says, turn from your fierce anger, relent, and don't bring disaster on your people. It wasn't so much on the people. What was Moses' primary intercession with God? It was God's reputation among the heathens. Exodus 33, a chapter later. Once again, God is a little bit upset with Israel. He says, I ain't going. Because if I go, I know I'm going to kill you boys. He said, I'll send an angel. And Moses said, "Uh uh-uh, don't do it. He said, if you don't go, don't send us. I mean, most folk, they see the promise. They see an angel. They say, I'm good. Let's get it. Not Moses. He said, what will distinguish us from the other peoples of the earth if you don't go with us? You see, Moses had something in his heart. And we wonder, what was this relationship that Moses had face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth, breath-to-breath, as a man speaks with his friend? Moses was so concerned with the honor and glory of God, not just how it was going to affect himself or the people around him. It was, God, how does this affect you? What is this going to make you look like in the nations? If you remember, the very thing that disqualified Moses was when he dishonored God by smacking that rock again. It was that dishonor that got him disqualified from stepping in. 1 Samuel 12, 22 says, The Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name. God's great name. John Piper puts it this way very succinctly, that the foundation of God's love for us is his commitment to his own glory. His own glory. And let me just tell you, it shifts not only our understanding of God, but it shifts how we relate to him and how we relate to the world as well. This gospel is best understood as God's supreme manifestation of his name and his glory. That what man could not do on his own, regardless of how good, how upgraded, how anointed, how powerful, was still always going to fall short. This is why in heaven it's not going to be a bunch of folks saying, I was Baptist, I was Episcopalian, I raised my hand, I got sprinkled, I got dunked. There's not going to be any of that in heaven. We're all going to be looking around like, whoo, glad I'm here. (laughs) And you're not going to need any road signs in heaven because there's going to be nothing but a great big throne and the multitudes worshiping around that throne. You're not going to need instructions when you get there. It's gospel. God exalted Jesus to the highest place, it says in Philippians 2. Gave him the name that is above every name. That at that name, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. To the what? The glory of God the Father. So let me give you a few thoughts. Psalm 23, we know this one. Easy to memorize, it's short. The Lord is my shepherd, you know this one, makes me lie down, he leads me, etc. He guides me in paths of righteousness, why? For his name's sake. There it is. You see, 
Part of God's namesake is being a great Abba. It's being a great daddy. And part of what God, what part of what good daddies do, they provide and they lead. So one of the things about a good shepherd is led and fed. And let me just say on the behalf of the sheep, it's not just a testimony to good breeding or unusually smart sheep. It's always good shepherding. Let me tell you, smart sheep, that's a contradiction of terms. When God called us sheep, it was not a compliment. I know this firsthand because my father-in-law was a veterinarian. He also pastored a church. So he bought a few dozen head of sheep just to observe sheep. And he came back to me after I said, what did you learn? He said, they're the dumbest animals on the face of the planet. I said, what do you mean? He said, I can put a 16-foot feeding trough off. They'll all try to eat out of the same place and literally crush one another to death trying to get to the same spot. He said, if a dog gets in the pen, rather than them kind of make a tight circle, they'll go off in different directions and I'll come out in the morning and I've got mutton for dinner that night because the dogs have killed these sheep. He said, it's not a compliment. And so the fact that we can appreciate the benefits of Psalm 23, it's not the fact that we are somehow genetically modified smart sheep. It's because he's a really good shepherd that knows how to protect us and lead us in passive righteousness and get us into the place that we don't try to climb over one another to get to food. Righteousness. That you may be pure and blameless until the day of Jesus Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. What? To the glory and praise of God. See, this is not about the human honor or testimony of an upgraded or empowered life. I got to help you with that. Get over yourself. Well, I was and now I am. Congratulations. I'm proud of you. Or like Nancy would go. I'm proud of you. But reality is that righteousness is for his name. It's for his name's sake. Psalm 25, 11, For your name's sake, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Wow. Well, I, I thought the whole sin thing was just so that I could be an upgraded version of me, so that I could produce more, so that I could be a better, better. No. God dealing with the sin issue in your life and imparting and imputing his righteousness to you, it is for his glory. You see, God doesn't bring us to a better version of ourselves. He imparts to us his very righteousness. How does that happen? It's the glory of God. And we know that this issue of forgiveness is one of the things that got, got Jesus jammed up. Matthew 9. Seeing this man that had been a paralytic, he said, your sins are forgiven. And they're looking around. Whoa, 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 whoa. What, what, what did he say? Who has the power to forgive sins? He says, you know what? You didn't have a problem with the healing part, but it's the sin part you're struggling with. 
See, this is where we really have an issue of defining deity, right here. This is where the rubber met the road of understanding that when Jesus says in John 10, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Your sins are forgiven. And it's only in this context that we begin to understand what repentance really is. Well, I thought it was saying I'm sorry. Maybe. 2 Corinthians 7, though, delineates between what's called worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is, I was going too fast, blue lights, I'm going to court. I'm sorry I got caught. But godly sorrow, it's a matter of, I haven't just sinned against me. I haven't just sinned against the commonwealth of Virginia. I've sinned against God himself. And let me just tell you, you want to talk about something that will restrain your life? When you begin to realize it's for his name, for his name, it begins to to provide the parameters, the guardrails around our life. It's not about what we can get away with in public anymore, but it's for his name. And it also contextualizes some things that we don't like much. Delay. I, I don't like delay much. Waiting on God. We say, oh, well, God's working things out of me and working them perseverance and patience, and I've read my Bible. And so this, is, this delay is really about God perfecting me. That's not totally inaccurate. It's also a place that the enemy likes to exploit in those moments of delay because he says he ain't listening. He ain't listening because he don't care. Because he don't care, he ain't showing up. And we all know what that voice sounds like as something's been delayed around our life. And yet, could I submit to you that many times it's a divine delay, not a demonic delay, because God's got something greater on the back end that we're not seeing on the front end. Lazarus, if you'd been here, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Yeah, Jesus has said from the beginning, this illness will not result, what? In death. It is for what? God's, come on, glory. Why? Because resurrection is more glorious than just healing. And let me tell you, God will wait. He will shatter every expectation you have of him and how he moves to wait until there's a rock in front of the tomb and bad odors come forth. He will wait for that measure of death and delay around your life so we can never say it was the doctors, it was my financial planning, it was good luck, it was karma. No, 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 no. God says it was for my glory all along. And he will orchestrate delay around our life. He will also orchestrate denial. You mean God would tell me no? this beautiful, wonderful child of God would actually not grant my request in a New York minute. Paul had a little cachet with God. Great revelations. And God sent, it says, a messenger of Satan, a tormentor. 
Whether it was physical or demonic or emotional, we don't really know, except he didn't want it. And you know what God said? Nope, not taking it away. Because I got something bigger I want to teach you about me. It's called grace. You mean God would actually say no? All the time. Because he wants to find out what are you deifying in your life? Are you deifying the need? Are you deifying the want? Or are you going to put God in that place of being who he is? And then discomfort in all of the above. We hate discomfort. Isaiah 48 talks about the furnace of affliction. I don't know what it is, but I don't like the sound of it. (laughs) But the discomfort. And yet Jesus, let's talk about discomfort. What was before him, he embraced the cross. He knew what was coming. He had certainly, he understood enough about human anatomy. He understood enough about the cruelty of the Romans to understand what was about to happen. Yet he embraced that discomfort. He prayed a prayer, God, not for me, not my will, but thy will be done. Because he understood the world was about to see something. Was about to see a guy who was dead no longer be dead. And there was greater glory than just escaping the cross. A new perspective. A new orientation. You know, I look at Jesus' ministry. What would Jesus do? You know, the best I can tell, Jesus was absolutely, singularly focused and preoccupied on one thing, pleasing the Father. Being fully God, fully man, that it was not even something he thought he could grasp. But it was always for my daddy, for my father, bringing glory to my father. Could I submit If we want a true life of WWJD, it's one that's lived for God, not just in the name of. This this was Jesus' orientation as he walked. Did he heal? Did he do miracles? Did he bring people into salvation? Yes. But I'm talking about what was the thing that was preeminent in his life? Daddy. You know, the shift comes in now, not, not just how this affects me, but how does this affect God? You know, we live so much of our life, and let me just get transparent with you because I think most of you, if you really scratch down, you'll see this is true. Trying to figure out how I can bring Minimally comfort, if not honor, to me. But something has to shift. It, 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 it has to shift. Fruit for the glory of God. The church for the glory of God. Everything that we do is designed 
for his glory, not for yours and not for mine. Far beyond what we can attain in his name. In the name of Jesus. Is there power? Yes. But that one simple word, for his name. Let me tell you. And God can, God smells the difference. You know why? Because there is an incense that comes off of the people that are not just wired to figure out what they can get in his name, but for a people that are wired and committed to seeing what can be offered up for his name. I'm, I'm committed to this. This is a life message for me. But I believe this is the kind of worshipers the Father is looking for. It's not the in his names. It's the for his names. Pray with me.